All right, let's, uh, let's pray together again, shall we? Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the gift of another morning to gather in worship together. Uh, we are so grateful, Lord, to be here, to sing to you, to pray to you, that you invite us to draw near to you. Thank you for your mercy and kindness. And Lord, thank you for your word that you haven't left us to wonder about who you are or what you are like. You have told us in your word. And so help us as we read these verses, understand what we read and apply it to our lives. Uh, Holy Spirit, come and teach us and guide us. Uh, It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. All right. Well, hey, good morning uh, once again, and welcome to FBC. We're so glad you're here. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors, and we just want to welcome you and invite you to turn in your Bible to Galatians chapter 6, starting in verse 1. That's going to be our text for the morning. You just heard it read aloud, Galatians chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Uh, I found that one of the most anxiety-producing situations in life has to be where you don't, excuse me, where you're somewhere, but you don't know the expectation that others have of you. You're in a new place and you don't quite know the expectations on how to behave, what's okay, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. Think about when you first start a new job, right? How do things work at this company? What's okay to do or not do? What are my responsibilities exactly? What is uh, someone else's responsibility? When you're starting a new class, right? You go over week one, the syllabus. Here's the expectations. Here's what you have to do. Here's what your teacher's going to do. Uh, When your kids start a new sport, or start a new school, right? There's actually a lot of responsibilities as parents, right? If you're a soccer parent or a swim parent or a a parent of a kid at a new school, right? Do you get involved with the parent-teacher conferences or the groups and things like that? What are you responsible for? There have been a handful of times, too, where I've been at a new church, right? Not my my home church, uh, a new church service that I go to. And there, there's anxiety about expectations, right? I'm in this new place. Do I stand or do I sit? When do I sing out? When do I stay quiet? What do I do with my hands, right? Maybe some of you are experiencing that this morning. You're in a new place and you're still kind of learning what's expected around here. Or there's an event coming up. There's this lunch after service. Is that for me? Should I show up? Would it be weird if I show up? Am I supposed to be there? Would they be upset if I'm not there? Things like that. Who exactly is this for? Right? Can you relate to that anxiety? What's expected of me in this place? This is why we have things like, again, back to school night and new student orientation and training at your new jobs and a syllabus in your class to learn what's expected of me. What do I have to do in this place? How do I handle myself and handle relationships with others here? And the same is needed in the church, right? We're in this Love Your Church study, this series where for a few months we're looking at what it means to be the church. And we talked about in week one how we're this new family This new people called the church centered on Jesus and the gospel. But just because we know Jesus and the gospel doesn't mean that we necessarily know how to interact with one another. But it doesn't mean that we've learned what's appropriate in relationships, how we love and care for and serve one another, right? We can't assume that we all just automatically know how to do relationships in a healthy way. We can actually harm others and be harmed in relationships if we don't let scripture teach us and guide us for how we are to relate and love and serve one another. 
And so this week, we're in chapter four of our study, or week four of our study, chapter four of the book of the same title, Love Your Church, that we're using as a resource. We still actually have a few copies in the back of you somehow have managed to not get your copy yet. We still have them, and so I want you to have it as we read along. This week, we're in chapter four, talking about caring, what is expected of Uh, church members relationally? How do we love one another? And if you read the chapter, you know this already. It starts out, I love how it laid out all these one another's in the New Testament, right? If you read it, maybe you, you haven't read it yet, but you're familiar with the one another's of the New Testament, How all throughout the New Testament, we see all these verses that teach us uh, what to do for one another, to love one another, forgive one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, on and on. I'm not going to read them in length this morning, but I want to encourage you uh, to revisit that chapter in the book, chapter four, and it lays out some of them. Here are some of your responsibilities as believers that you have to one another. So go ahead and take a look there. But this morning, uh, we're just going to zoom in on Galatians chapter 6, because in a short few verses, it tells us so much about how we are to uh, interact with each other. Galatians chapter 6 follows chapter 5, as 6s often do. Uh, But you'll notice in chapter 5, Paul is writing and talking about the freedom that believers have in Christ. They're no longer bound by the Old Testament law and held under it. They have this new life in Christ. They don't have to follow the the Jewish customs of the Old Testament. They're brought into the family of God, not by circumcision or by any other uh, cultural act for the Jews, but by faith in Christ. That's how we enter the family of God, through faith in Christ. And so we have this new freedom in Christ, but... He wants to clarify that this freedom in Christ that we have, this freedom from the Old Testament law, does not now mean that we just are to run off and do whatever we want, right? You're free to chase all your desires and impulses and go whatever direction you choose. No, he makes clear your freedom is to be used to serve other people. You're now free to love others well. You're free from the slavery to self, free from always having to get your way and get what you want. And instead, you're set free in order to love other people, to become a person of love that's focused on the good of others, not just yourself. And so he unpacks in Galatians chapter six, some specifics on what that should look like. And so this morning is essentially this, here's the syllabus, here's the uh, new disciple orientation, right? On the job training here about as followers of Jesus, as a church, how we should interact. And there's a few basics here we see. Look at verse one with me. It says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the spirit should restore that person gently. So the first relational expectation we're going to talk about this morning, how we can care for one another, is by practicing gentle restoration. Scripture is clear that that as Christians, we will still stumble 
and sin, right? When we come to Jesus, it doesn't mean that we're automatically going to be perfect and never need to repent again. We still are going to disobey the Lord. We're still going to break his commands. We're still going to be selfish. We're still going to need to repent. That's a regular practice in the Christian life. And so verse one is telling us that, hey, we might be caught in a sin, meaning we might be trapped in a sin or, or overtaken by sin or caught up in something. Maybe it's because of ignorance and we simply don't know that what we're still doing is, is a sin and is uh, disobeying the Lord, and so we need to learn. Maybe we're caught in it because of weakness, right? We know that it's wrong, but we can't seem to stop doing it. Or maybe it's because of willful disobedience, right? And we know it's wrong, but we just want to do it anyways. We can be caught in sin. The other reality about sin is that the Bible tells us how deceptive sin is, doesn't it? Sin is deceptive. John 8 tells us that our enemy is the father of lies, meaning Satan, our enemy, wants to lie to us and deceive us and and help us uh, get it wrong in so many ways. Hebrews chapter 3, if you go and read it, we'll talk about how we need to exhort one another so that we will not be hardened in our hearts by the deceitfulness of sin. Right? Sin often deceives us. And here's the thing about being deceived. When you're deceived, you don't know you're deceived, right? That's my definition is you, you think that you're going the right direction and yet you're not. Proverbs 14, 12 says there's a way that seems right to a man and yet in the end it leads to death. There's a way that seems right. We can think we're on the right track and yet it actually leads to death and destruction. It's a sobering reality, Right? And so when this happens, and when we notice this in one another, verse 1 says, well, what should we do? Well, again, we, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. We should restore them gently. If you read the book, you know that Greek word there for restore means putting a, a bone that's out of joint back in place intervening in a gracious way to to help a brother or sister, to help our friends see what maybe they can't see themselves. We have this responsibility to care for one another, to help one another find freedom, find life, to walk out of sin and away from it. And so whenever sin shows itself in the church, right, we have this responsibility, whether it's sexual immorality or slander or gossip or greed or violence or or whatever it might be, we have to address sin with the goal of restoration. That's what the text tells us. Gently restore one another, not to bring shame, to condemn, to call out but to heal and to help, right? Verse one, the key says is to do this with what? Gentleness. With gentleness. So we restore not to bring shame, not to beat down, not to alienate, not in harsh tones and a legalistic spirit and accusatory posture, but with humility and love. I can't remember where I heard it, but I remember someone using the language of, we are to call people up, not out. And I think that's very helpful in this context, right? If you call someone out, what does it mean? I'm calling you out. 
I want to shame you. I want to expose you. Cancel culture, right? You're done. You're on the outside. I want to humble you, put you in your place, and I want to leave you there. I want to call you out. That's not the spirit here. Right? The spirit is to call people up, to call people, say, hey, Jesus has something better for you, right? As a child of God, there's a better way. I want to call you up into all that God has for you. I know that as a child of God, you are better than what you're displaying in this action, in this behavior, in this pattern, whatever it might be. I want to call people up. And so we can do that through an intentional conversation, right? Gently, hey, I've noticed this in our interactions. Hey, I've seen this. I wanted to talk to you about this because I love you. Or, or hey, I might, I might not have all of the information, but here's what I did see. Could you help me understand what's going on here? Or, hey, I overheard all right, this conversation, or you say so-and-so in that interaction, and it kind of concerned me. Could we talk about it? Well, one of the things I've learned that's best in this practice is to lead with questions, right? To assume that we probably don't have all the information. It's very possible that we are misunderstanding things. And so ask just some clarifying questions in love. That's usually a great place to start. But I don't know, for me personally, I've found that some of the most helpful and formative times in my life have been when people loved me enough to have some of these conversations with me. They loved me enough to help me see something that I maybe couldn't see. I remember in college, people talking to me about my pride. Uh, a trusted leader came to me and had one of those hard conversations. Like, hey, we see this you know, pride welling up in you, and, and here's how, and can we talk about that? It was super helpful, and they were right, right? I needed to see that and hear that. I've had others point out to me how I could do better as a husband or, or as a pastor, things I need to learn, things I need to grow out of, things I need to grow in, right? We, we need to gently restore one another. But, but notice here in verse 1 that there's a warning that comes with this practice, Right? The rest of verse 1 says what? Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Okay, so he's saying, hey, there's actually a temptation to maybe get caught up in the same sin uh, that this other person is engaged in, or maybe in this way you have a temptation to pride the warning continues, right? Look at verse 3 and 4. If, if anyone thinks there's something when they're not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. Okay, so, so notice what the text is saying. Hey, there's this real danger. You might be tempted. You might be tempted, as verse 3 says, to think you are something. Or in other words, it's saying to be puffed up about your own importance or your own holiness, your own ego is, is flared up, and you might deceive yourself. Maybe you're tempted to compare yourself with others, and because you're confronting this other person about some sin, you, you know, feel pretty good about yourself, and you don't sin the way that they sin, and that's kind of nice. And so you kind of, you know, on your pedestal up there, unlike this poor brother or sister that you're trying to help out. You see? There's this temptation. And so a warning to engage in this sort of gentle restoration with humility and before we break out the binoculars, we need to look in the mirror, right? Probably spend more time looking in the mirror than with our binoculars. Because some of us are too quick to, to make ourselves like the self-appointed sin police in the church. I'm ready to tell you what you did wrong. 
We're overeager in that way. We need to pump the brakes because Jesus pointed out, right, that we have to remove the log from our own eye before we take the speck out of our brother's. Not that we shouldn't care about the speck in our brothers, but we need to deal with the log in ours first. We have to check our hearts. Ask the Lord to humble us. Ask the Lord to help us see ourselves clearly. We need to remember the gospel, how we so desperately needed the grace of God and the mercy of God and the patience of God and proceed in light of that. But we also have to avoid, you see in the text, the other extreme where we just say nothing about sin. Right? Because that's especially, I think, a temptation in our culture today because we don't want to judge and we don't want to appear judgmental, right? That's like the last thing someone would want today. I don't want to come off judgmental. So I'm just never going to have hard conversations. Right? Sometimes we swing to the opposite extreme and we think it's maybe more godly just to like stay quiet and not do anything. But that's, that's not the way forward either because Paul makes it clear in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he actually will lay it out quite clearly. Hey, it's not our job, to, our job to judge the world, right? It's not your job to judge outsiders, to judge the community. It's not your job to expect people who don't know Jesus to act like they know Jesus. Right? That, don't worry about them. God's going to take care of them. He'll handle that. But our job, right, is to, he says, to judge and hold one another accountable within the church. There's actually a different relationship we have in here with one another, to keep one another accountable, to encourage one another, to live a life of, of holiness and purity, to follow Jesus as best we can, to help one another, right? So Tim Keller summarizes this verse by saying, we should neither be quick to criticize or afraid to confront. And that's the balance that we have to hold because again, some of us are quick to criticize and y'all need to work on humility and gentleness and patience. And, and some of us are afraid to confront and timid. And if that's you, then we need to work on loving others, loving others enough to have a hard conversation, right? It's easier to stay quiet and we think that maybe that's actually extending care for that person, but actually it's probably kind of selfish because then we don't have to ruffle any feathers and it's just easier for us. So love each other enough to do the work of gentle restoration. But this gentle restoration isn't the only responsibility we have to one another, right? We see that in verse 1, but there's more. We also see this call to burden-bearing. Okay, look at verse 2. It says, carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. It's a really beautiful verse we're going to walk through. We carry each other's burdens. And it reminds us that we all have heavy loads in life that we are uh, carrying and weighed down by. And we often need help. We need other people uh, to come alongside us and help carry that burden with us. We need to bear these things together, which in the context, again, could refer to, to moral or sin issues in someone's life, helping them grow, or it could just, in general, refer to all of life's trials, right? The challenges that we all will face, whether it's grief or loss, hardship, heartache, financial issues, we need to extend love and support, a willingness to show up, material help as appropriate, now, this, this verse is really noteworthy because if you were living in the ancient world in the first century and you heard this talk of carrying someone else's burden, carrying something for someone else, your mind would probably make two associations. The first association would be to uh, servants 
bond servants or slaves, right? In the ancient world, it was their job to carry things for their boss or for their master or wherever they were at. They had to do that, carry things for their master so that things were easier for their boss, right? That was part of their job as a bond servant or a slave. That would be the first association. The second association that someone would make would be with a Roman soldier, right? You guys are maybe familiar with the the practice where a Roman soldier could take a a local citizen and and force them to carry some of the soldier's belongings up to a mile. And that's, of course, where Jesus said the famous line of someone makes you walk a mile, go the second mile, that deal, right? So a Roman soldier could force someone to carry their burden for them. But what you notice with that is that in both cases, This burden-bearing, this support, this carrying another's burden was not voluntary, right? With with a boss or a master uh, or a soldier calling you to carry their burden, you, you had to do it. It wasn't a choice. It was an expectation. But here, Paul is calling then Christians to do voluntarily what others would only do when forced, you know what Paul says, I want you to do voluntarily for one another what others would only do if forced. Carry each other's burdens voluntarily. Choose to support one another in this way. And I appreciated how if you read the book, chapter 4, it pointed out this kind of tension in the text or this potential point of confusion because in verse 5, it talks about how we all have to carry our own load. Did you read that? And that could seem confusing, right? Well, is, is it saying that we have to all carry our own stuff, like verse 5 says? Or are we supposed to carry things for each other, like verse 2 says? Which is it? And there's a helpful distinction here, right? That we need to realize some things are ours to own and ours only. There are certain things that we all are responsible for before God. Before God, we'll have to stand and give an account for how we handled our time, how we handled our money, the the basic responsibilities of life, the things that God entrusted to us to steward, we'll have to give an account for that. And so this text of carrying each other's burdens is not saying, hey, pay your kids' bills until they're 30, or do your friends' math homework for them. It's, It's not saying to do that, but it's saying instead when a situation arises, That is too heavy to bear alone. When there's a widow or a single mom or a a foster parent in your midst or someone who's chronically ill or navigating cancer treatment, and they're overwhelmed by what life has brought their way, would you step in? Help them carry that burden. Bring a meal. Offer babysitting. Help maybe when unexpected expenses do come up in a generous spirit. And so here in the church, our burdens are to become lighter because we share them. I remember teaching this to some high school students back in Colorado, and uh, Amber and I were volunteering in a youth group there, and so I had my small group of, of high school boys, and we were in the youth room for a small group, and we were studying the book of Galatians, and I wanted to illustrate this point to them. And so I sat my you know, large behind on a couch and I instructed one of the students, I said, hey, you need to push me and this couch across the room. 
Like, that's the task. That's what the, Jesus told me. You need to do this. So, you know, here you go. And so he, of course, started to try and do that. But, uh, you know, I'm not a small gentleman. And so that was difficult for him. And he actually couldn't push me and the couch across the room. It was a burden that was too heavy to bear. And then me and my co-leader said, okay, well, with these other five or six boys here, why don't you enlist them to help? And why don't you guys help him carry and push this burden? So they came and together they were able to actually push my large behind across the room on this couch. And so again, a simple illustration, right? That this burden was heavy and they couldn't do it alone. And yet together, sharing that burden, they were able to carry it, to bear it together. And so the church should be a place where we all have these eyes, right, to notice the needs of other people and are moved to find ways to help. It's not just a role for the staff or for right, the official pastors of the church. It's for the people of the church, right, to, to do this to one another, bear one another's burdens, carry each other's burdens, because the staff or the pastors can't meet all the needs in the church. And, and you can't meet all the needs of everyone in the church, right? You can't do this for everyone. You can't carry everyone's burdens. But you can help carry someone's, right? Maybe there's an individual in your life, a person, a family in your small group, and you're aware of some needs and ways you can help. Right? If we all have eyes to see this and we all are engaged in burden bearing, think about how much lighter the loads will be around the entire church. I remember being a lifeguard back in, uh, after I graduated high school in, in the summers. I was a lifeguard at uh, Golfland Sunsplash up in Roseville. You guys drive by it, anybody? You know, you know what I'm talking about, all the slides there. And uh, I, the worst part of being a lifeguard for me was uh, the wave pool. Uh, if you were like on the lazy river cool, or if you were on the slide tower, you know, blow a whistle, send people down the slides, that was easy. But the, laser, or the, uh, the wave pool, there's like hundreds of people and the waves are going, and there's like all ages and it's just like chaos in there. It was super stressful to be like the lifeguard on duty at the wave pool because just the need was overwhelming and it stressed me out. And so I always like, I only did it once and it didn't go well. And so they put me on the tower afterwards and that was fine. But, um, but because there's just so much need and only a few of us that were on duty. But I imagine again, what if around the wave pool, there was a whole army of lifeguards, right? And we had our whole staff circling the wave pool. And we said, hey, we're all looking at this together. It's not just on you. Together, we're gonna care for the people in the wave pool. That would've made a huge difference. It would've changed the dynamic entirely. Now, Golfland Sunsplash in Roseville didn't have the resources to hire enough lifeguards to make that a reality. But in the church, we can all step into that way and be caring for one another in the wave pool that is life. See what I did there? That's good. That's good. So verse two, carry each other's burdens. And this is, here's the kicker. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. So beautiful. The law of Christ. He's been arguing in this letter how they're free from the Old Testament law. And yet now they are to fulfill the law of Christ, which can mean a few things. One, it could speak to the teachings of Jesus, right? How he taught us what to love God and love our neighbors, the two greatest commands. So Jesus set out this command. That's how we are to live, to be led by the spirit, to love one another. But not just the teaching of Jesus shows this, the example of Jesus shows this, right? That Jesus, as he goes to the cross he bears our burdens. 
The consequences, the punishment for our sin, the weight of it was placed upon him. And so by his example, going to the cross for us, he bears our burdens. Jesus is the ultimate burden bearer. He's the one who ultimately set the example to carry our burdens. Tim Keller once again summarizes, bear others' burdens, and by doing this, follow in the footsteps of Christ who bore yours. Isn't that beautiful? Look to the cross. Look to how Jesus carried your burden, your shame, your guilt, your sin upon himself. And he went to the cross and he died for us. And he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. That's the gospel, right? That the greatest burden we bear is not some trial in life, but it's our own sin and our separation from God. And Jesus wants to take that from us. He wants to carry that for us. He invites us to trust him. And he says, come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest. He died for us. And the reality is some of us are here and maybe we haven't yet put our trust in Jesus. We haven't put our faith in Christ for salvation. And we're carrying then this heavy burden of sin. And we're here this morning and we're just exhausted because we are trying to, to bear this weight on our own, to, to measure up, to, to prove ourselves, to atone for our past sins. We're trying to earn God's approval or the approval of others, and that's a heavy weight that we cannot bear. And Jesus invites us to come to him and find rest and realize that the weight of sin, that burden, be taken off of our shoulders and placed on him. He wants to carry it for you if you put your trust in him. If you'd cry out to him. He's the ultimate burden bearer. And so we have gentle restoration, burden bearing, and verse 6 is cool and talks about paying your pastors, which you all do great. So let's move on to verse 9 and 10. Look at how it, how it summarizes. Summary section. It says, verse 9, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Kind of summary, right? Let us not become weary in doing good. Is anyone exhausted from this sermon this morning? Are you guys tired just thinking about this mantle being laid upon you? It sounds like a lot of work, right? And it is in a lot of ways, right? It's gonna, it, it takes work. It takes effort to love and care for one another. And so there's this reminder, do not grow weary. Keep at it. The Lord will strengthen you as you engage in this. And then verse 10, as you have opportunity, let us do good to all. That's big, right? Do you want to reach our city with the gospel? Do you want people to come to know Jesus? You want to make an impact in Benicia and in the Bay in Jesus' name? Do good to others. Like, learn to love your neighbors, right? Because here's the deal. Today, um, you've probably noticed this. People are really suspicious of Christians, right? Like, you know, Bible-believing Christians um, are not necessarily held in really high esteem nowadays. 
And so people are wary or suspicious of, of judgmental Christians or of opinionated Christians or, you know, people who love Jesus and, and just kind of run around, you know, throwing Bible verses out or condemning people or whatever. People are really weary of what we know and our beliefs and us wanting to, to share those. And we still should share the gospel with our words. Don't hear me wrong. But we also need to surprise people with love to refresh people with acts of love in the name of Jesus, to help them truly see what the heart of God is all about. So do good to all as we have opportunity, to love our city well. But you notice there's this this clarifier. It says, especially to those who belong to the family of believers, especially to our fellow Christians. Now, does that sound strange to you? Maybe not. But, but maybe it is a little confusing because maybe you say, well, wait a second. Shouldn't we be focused on loving our neighbors? And aren't we here to like love those outside of the church and, and reach the lost? Isn't that like priority number one? So why does this say to love Christians or especially focus on doing good to the family of believers? Well, there's this, this biblical principle here and elsewhere in the New Testament that's laid out that we do have this special responsibility, first, to the family of God. First, to those here, to care for and love one another. We're not responsible for or to everyone in exactly the same way. Maybe a little surprising for some, but think about it. The same is true. It's really a simple concept. When you think about your biological family, right? are you supposed to love the neighbors on your street? Yes, Are you supposed to love your family and care for the needs of your family first? Yes. (laughs) Yes, that's a sin, right? Uh, Think about it, right? If uh, if you were spending your paycheck every month to feed people in Costa Rica or you are, you know, paying the PG&E bills of your neighbors on your street because they can't pay it, meanwhile, your family is going hungry and your power got shut off at your house, what do we say? Well, there's maybe a problem there. And first, like, make sure that you have power and that your kids have food. Like, handle here first. And then, yes, let's go out beyond that. But don't skip over what's here to go out there. Does that make sense? So we have this responsibility, this special focus to the household of faith, to our family of believers, our family called the church. We can't overlook one another because we're loving people out there. We have to see that uh, we're caring for our brothers and sisters. So we need to look for everyday opportunities to do good to others, especially the family of faith, but ultimately, yes, everyone. I love this quote from the book. Uh, Tony Merida writes this, most of us will not die in martyrdom Rather, we will be called to spend our lives serving others, little by little, doing good things for our friends, neighbors, families, and church members. We will visit the sick, take groceries to an elderly couple, listen to a wounded brother, welcome a foster kid into our homes, visit a shut-in, advocate for the voiceless, take cookies to a neighbor. That may not be as heroic as martyrdom, but it still requires death to self and it can all be done in the name of Jesus for the glory of Jesus. How are we doing? All right, this is our back to school night. This is our on the job training. This is our new student orientation. This is our manual for relationships in the church, go back to Galatians 6 over and over to see it. As Christians, we're called to care for one another by practicing gentle restoration, 
burden-bearing, doing good to all, especially to one another. And a confession, this week I was convicted at just how bad I am at all of this. It's how it doesn't come naturally for me to, to practice this kind of love and, and being others focused. God was convicting me that I need his power and his spirit and his, his strength within me to lead a life of love for other people. And a real test for this is, because uh, you might think, well, I'm okay at this, you know, doing all right. But the, the real test is, is how do you do with these principles when it's inconvenient? You know, when like, when you're in a rush or time is tight or money is tight, how do you respond when an opportunity or a need comes up in front of you? Because if we got all the time in the world and all the money in the world, it's, yeah, it's really not that difficult to be like, yeah, sure, you can have some money and yeah, sure, you can have some time and here we go, why not, right? But when, when money is tight or, or time is tight or when it's inconvenient, how do you respond? Actually, this week as I was preparing for this sermon, uh, I got lovingly interrupted on a Thursday afternoon by a, a dear brother who came by the church. And it's kind of a long story, but he wanted to drop something off. And this sweet older man, and he, uh, again, dropped something off, but he was, you know, very chatty and wanted to talk about um, life and, and things. And he happened to, you know, play the piano. And so, like, after he dropped the thing off, he was like, hey, do you have time, you know, for me to play a song on the piano? And I was like, no, but sure. And um, I didn't say that, but I thought that. And he comes in and plays the piano. Beautiful song on the piano. It was really sweet. And he's like, I got time for another. And I was like, I don't, but okay. Um, again, in my mind, not out loud. And so he played his other song, and it was sweet. It was a sweet interaction, and if he's listening to this, brother, I love you. Um, but I was just like, in my heart, I was like, I don't have time for this, right? And so I got to write a sermon. I got stuff to do. I'm crunched, and I'm just like, in my heart, I'm like, ah, just like, love you, bless you, on your way, you know? Um, and it just showed me how, how difficult it is for me to, to give generously, to look to the needs of others and how meaningful this interaction could be for this brother. And so I, you know, did it. So I guess the action was right and I was patient and whatever, but the heart wasn't right. So I don't know if this is like a good example or a bad example. I'm just processing this with you guys. There was, it was kind of a mixed bag there. And, and so maybe you feel the same. Like, oh, I don't know if this comes as naturally to me, but Lord, you've called me to this. And so would you help me? Right? Help me look to what can bless others around me and not just my own schedule and timeline and needs and so on. So um, in closing, just a few encouraging, uh, or a few encouraged next steps uh, in how to apply all this to our lives. The first uh, would be to prayerfully look in the mirror. Right, we saw earlier how the text warns us we might be tempted, we might be proud, we might... Uh, be harsh. We might compare ourselves to others. And so we need to first sit with the Lord and ask him to examine our hearts. Lord, help me see what's here in my own heart. Help me turn from my own sin. Help me approach this with humility and love before we just run off and are like, pastor told me to rebuke people in their sin. You know, off I go. First, humble yourself before the Lord. Look in the mirror, sit with the Lord quietly and let him speak to your heart. Maybe even ask your family or, or brothers and sisters, your friends. Say like, hey, could you help me see? Is there anything in my life I'm missing right now? Right? Is there anything about my behavior, my speech that's, that's been concerning to you that you've noticed? And invite them to speak into your life. And then don't get mad when they tell you the truth. Okay? That'd be a brave step, but, but it could be a necessary one in your growth. So prayerfully look in the mirror. Next, uh, commit to community. Right? Commit to community. 
we can't live out the practices we're talking about this morning in isolation, right? You can't live out the one another's without the others. We can't do this unless we're invested in community, right? It'd be odd just on a Sunday morning to go up to someone, right, and say, I want to talk to you about your sin. You'd probably say, I don't not sure I know you, right? Or that I know you well enough to do that. And so just by coming and going on Sunday mornings, you're likely not going to know someone well enough to, one, know, talk to them about their sin or have that trust built, that relationship with them to where you are invited into that space with them, right? We don't just have this with everybody, right? There's, there's trusted people that we've built relationship with to do this with. Um, but also you might not know them well enough to know their needs, right? Just coming and going on Sunday morning, you might not know how to, how to help them, What's going on in their life? How to pray for them? How to come alongside them? And this is why community groups are so important, right? Because that's where relationships are going to be fostered. That's where prayer requests are really going to be shared. That's where life-on-life interaction is going to happen. So we need to be in community. We need to commit to community to be able to live out these one another's. And and the last thing is, is then to look for opportunities. So prayerfully look in the mirror, commit to community, and then look for opportunities. Verse 10 says, as we have opportunity, would we have eyes to see? Pray, pray that God would help us see and bring people into our path that we could love and serve. Maybe there's someone, again, in your small group right now, in, in your family that's in this room and you know of a need. Think about how might I serve them this week? What's a way I could encourage them? Could I write them a note? Could I show up? Could I send some Panda Express via you know, DoorDash? Whatever it might be, how can you come alongside them? and thus fulfill the law of Christ. And that's what we have a chance to remember this morning as we, as we come to communion. Uh, hopefully you receive the elements when, when you walked in. We uh, remember our great burden bearer, the Lord Jesus himself, who carried our sin and our shame and our guilt upon himself on the cross that we might be forgiven. And he he left us this reminder by taking the bread and taking the cup as we gather, we remember his sacrifice, his broken body for you and for me, and his shed blood for you and for me. We remember how he's loved us so deeply. And so would you pray with me as we prepare to take these elements? Lord Jesus, we come to you and we celebrate this morning that you are the great burden bearer all the weight and consequences and punishment for our sin was placed upon you. You carried it. You carried our shame and guilt to the cross. You died for us so that through faith in you, we could be forgiven and freed and saved. Thank you, God, that you were reconciling the world to yourself in Christ, not counting our sins against us. It's a gift, Lord, that we simply receive And so, Jesus, we thank you this morning for your broken body and your shed blood for us. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, friends, we we practice an open table here at FBC, which means even if you're you're visiting, if this isn't your home church, uh, we invite everyone who's a, a believer, who has put their faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, to participate with us. And so, on, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me.